Welcome back to the Hemingway List, the best podcast ever. Uh, talking about Of Human Bondage, Chapter 28. All these different religions, I choose none. That was the discussion prompt. Uh, by the way, by the way, patreon.com slash the Hemingway List if you would like to support the podcast via that. Swims to the Mama Fishy said, recap, based on novel guide, Philip is amazed that someone has been taught, sorry, Philip is amazed that someone he had been taught was wicked, a Unitarian, a virtual unbeliever, is kind and more Christian than Christians. Philip experiments by going to a Lutheran church, a Catholic church, and then he wonders whether the Chinaman Sung is condemned to hell just because he is Chinese. Suddenly, Philip realizes he does not believe in God. He puts off the faith of childhood like a cloak and feels free. Weeks, the American, and Haywood, the English traveler, poke fun at the definition of a gentleman. Philip realizes that it refers to only someone English from the Church of English, who has, from the Church of England, who has a proper occupation and way of speaking and acting. This excludes most of the world from consideration. He finds Weeks very good and worth listening to, despite his prejudice that he, Philip, is a gentleman and Weeks is not. Philip decides that he no longer believes in God. Faith had been forced on him from the outside. Uh, he feels superior to those who do believe and f- free of the old shame. He realizes the price, however, for it means he will never see his mother again if she does not believe in immortality. He ironically wants to thank God for no longer believing in him. Standing on the hill overlooking the valley, he is moved by its beauty and its freedom, and his freedom. He wants to experience life free of shame. Life free of shame. Come on, what a simple thing that he should probably have. Acoustic Eel says, hey, my prediction came true. Granted, he's not full-blown atheist yet, but he's thinking about it at least. I like how Somerset brings in the carrot and stick that keeps some people from leaving religion, namely the chance of life after death, seeing your dead relatives again and the threat of hell. Maybe this is just a pendulum swing of his faith and we will see who have a more development on that front as we go forward hopefully not you know i'm 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 a bit i've got a bit of um uh burnout i'm burned out when it comes to religion talk from these from the hemingway list uh this book hasn't been too bad to be honest i mean there's been a bit of religion talk but it hasn't been too pretentious Whereas some of the other ones, they it's just like if I can figure out the most, like I don't know, convoluted religious thing, then I'm the smartest person. It's just a load of wank. Like the Brothers Karamazov is the worst book I've ever read, and I know that a lot of people was their favorite one from this list, but I just can't read a page about religion. Like one character saying a whole thing about religion for a whole page, I can't do it. I can't. I don't care. So um, this book is nothing compared to that. Um, and yeah, so now he's past it. You know, he's kind of past it. I just hope that it, you know, that we are past it, or at least that it's not a massive part of the book from here on. Um, I think his losing his religion will be a kind of a. Um, one of his defining characteristics, and I think that's sad when someone's 
lack of religion sort of defines them. You know, there's these famous atheists and they talk about religion as much as anyone. And it's like, why? If you don't, if you don't want any part of it, just don't just move on, you know? Um, so the one thing that I dislike more than an outspoken religious person is an outspoken atheistic person. Cause just shut up. Just talk about the weather or something for crying out loud. You're not that clever. No one cares, you know? Uh, all right. I'm Norwegian says, haha, Philip is intoxicated by his own intelligence. I love how he stumbles into that Reddit atheist stereotype so quickly after finding atheism. I thought it was a new thing that came about through the internet, but apparently it's always been that way, though I guess that kind of teenage elitism comes with any unorthodox position. It's not like they're more down-to-earth and reasonable if they discover some social cause or political philosophy. Well, thinking back on it, I'm pretty sure I said the exact same thing when Kolya was ranting about socialism and atheism in the Brothers Karamazov. There was a lot more to say about the chapter. It really... it. It's really relevant to a lot of things that keep coming up in the discussion on the subreddit, or at least during the Dostoevsky days, in which he, who shall not be named, does a surprisingly well job of encapsulating in this kid growing up, almost like Hess with all of the Jungian stuff. Oh, and from a discussion yesterday, uh, Renant's The Life of Jesus asserts that Jesus should be written about like any historic person and that the Bible could and should be subject to the same critical scrutiny as other historical documents. You asked if people disagree with that, and I kind of do. I'm more of the opinion that it doesn't really matter how literally it happened. You said it yourself earlier in the podcast, stories are true, not literally, but in a way that is more meaningful than purely descriptive truth. If you approach the Bible literally, either as a critic or as a believer, you often end up missing the point. No, critics don't address things literally. I don't think. I don't think we disagree at all. Um, I'm not. I maybe I misread it. I'm saying as a piece of as what it is. You know, a historical document, a Bible. As a Bible, we should be able to critique it. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to take it literally and go, "Oh, that could never happen." I mean, as a piece of symbolic writing as a collection of human symbolist stories it's not that good <laughs> even as that it's not that good you know that's what i'm saying um there are much better fables fairy tales uh you know morals to the story i like the christian faith don't get me wrong and i like the the, the lessons and the morality of it the morals but um i don't know it's a crap book Jan Brunt said, I just finished The Bells Cremers off to catch up with the rest of you. I'm definitely more on Anders' side. Mostly disliked it. This book feels very modern, especially in that the novel gives Philip, Philip's character room to breathe and grow and doesn't clutch its pearls about rational atheism. He doesn't have to come up, come to a born-again moment of religious breakthrough. I'm thinking of Pierre, Andre, Levin, Ivan, all of the deep-brooding young Russians. Christianity makes it all better. Is an ending that is pretty tired. Doesn't speak to me personally at all. Um, yeah, oh, this conversation just devolves into the Tolstoy versus Dosto thing again with the religion and the blah, blah, blah. I'm not going down that road again. I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm done with that conversation. We've had that conversation to death. So, all right. Um, Qtilly says, I really enjoyed this chapter because it somewhat mirrored my own religious transition. 
I was raised in an Eastern Orthodox Christian family in a more or less religiously homogenous environment. Most of the people I encountered while growing up were either Orthodox Christians or different irreligious groups, including atheists, which were also to a significant degree culturally Serbian Orthodox. In high school, I started slowly questioning Christian dogmas, but I was still trying to find justifications and excuses for religious beliefs I inherited, which were increasingly clashing with my scientific worldview. In college, I befriended a few Muslims, which prompted me to inquire about Islam, but also explore my own religious tradition more profoundly. The deeper I dug, my religious convictions became shakier. I too remember the feeling of relief after abandoning the belief in hell, while still retaining Christian ethics. The big difference to me is that unlike Philip, I didn't hear a clear-cut moment of abandoning inherited beliefs. It was a more gradual process of me slipping away from Christianity into deism and agnosticism. I think I'm probably an agnostic. Probably. Um, whenever anyone asks, I say agnostic because it kind of implies you don't care and you don't want to beat, you know, bang on about it. Um, I'm, I can't even imagine that feeling of taking off the cloak as Philip did and just being free of it. What a feeling. It must be. That must feel good, right? And I wonder for those people who have done that, taken off the cloak, how um, how sharp was the moment? Like, was there, like, for Philip, it just seemed like there was a moment. Like, he just had the thought and it was like a, a switch flicking. Or is it a more of a gradual thing where it, 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 it slowly but surely you kind of, you know, uh, you know, merge from one thing to the other, transition from one to the other? I wonder. Um, anywho, Philip, I think, is going to go on to become a great writer, and um, that interests me very much. So I'm interested to keep reading this book, and that's exactly what we're going to do right now. Uh, where are we? Chapter 29. God, Roman numerals are hard. Winter set in. Weeks went to Berlin to attend the lectures of Paulson, and Hayward began to think of going south. The local theatre opened its doors. Philip and Hayward went to it two or three times a week with the praiseworthy intention of improving their Germany, German, and Philip found it more diverting manner of perfecting himself in the language than listening to sermons. They found themselves in the midst of a revival of the drama. Several of Ibsen's plays were on the repertory for the winter, Sudermann's Die Er was then a new play, and on its production in the quiet university town caused the greatest excitement. It was extravagantly praised and bitterly attacked. Other dramatists followed with plays written under the modern influence, and Philip witnessed a series of works in which the vileness of mankind was displayed before him. He had never been to a play in his life till then. Poor touring companies sometimes came to the assembly rooms at Blackstable, but the vicar, partly on account of his profession, partly because he thought it was would be vulgar, never went to see them. And the passion of the stage seized him. He felt a thrill the moment he got into the little shabby, ill-lit theatre. Soon he came to know the peculiarities of the small company, and by the casting could tell at once what were the characteristics of the persons in the drama, but this made no difference to him. To him it was real life. It was a strange life, dark and tortured, in which men and women showed to 
too remorselessly eyes the evil that was in their hearts. A fair face concealed a depraved mind. The virtuous used virtue as a mask to hide their secret vice. The seeming strong fainted within with their weakness. The honest were corrupt. The chaste were lewd. You seemed to dwell in a room where the night before an orgy had taken place. The windows had not been opened in the morning. The air was foul with the dregs of beer and stale smoke and flaring gas. There was no laughter. At most, you sniggered at the hypocrite or the fool. The characters expressed themselves in cruel words that seemed wrung out of their hearts by shame and anguish. Philip was carried away by the sordid intensity of it. He seemed to see the world again in another fashion, and this world, too, he was anxious to know. After the play was over, he went to the tavern and sat in the bright warmth with Haywood to eat a sandwich and drink a glass of beer. All round were little groups of students talking and laughing, and here and there was a family, father and mother, a couple of sons and a girl. Sometimes the girl said a sharp thing, and the father leaned back in his chair and laughed, laughed heartily. It was very friendly and innocent. There was a pleasant homeliness to the scene. But for this, Philip had no eyes. His thoughts ran on the play he had just come from. You do feel it's life, don't you, he said excitedly. You know, I don't think I can stay here much longer. I want to go to London so that I can really begin. I want to have experiences. I'm so tired of preparing for life. I want to live it now. Sometimes Hayward left Philip to go home by himself. He would never exactly reply to Philip's eager questioning, but with a merry, rather stupid laugh, hinted at a romantic amour. He quoted a few lines of Rossetti and once showed Philip a sonnet, in which passion and purple, pessimism and pathos were packed together on the subject of a young lady called Trude. Haywood surrounded his sordid and vulgar little adventures with a glow of poetry and thought he touched hands with Pericles, Pericles and Phaedius because to describe the object of his attentions he used the word hetaria instead of one of those more blunt and apt, provided by the English language. Philip, in the daytime, had been led by curiosity to pass through the little street near the old bridge, with its neat white houses and green shutters, in which, according to Haywood and Fraulein Trude, lived but the women, with brutal faces and painted cheeks, who came out of their doors and cried out to him, filled with him with fear, and he fled in horror from the rough hands that sought to detain him, he yearned above all things for experience and felt himself ridiculous because at his age he had not enjoyed that which all fiction taught him was the most important thing in life, but he had the unfortunate gift of seeing things as they were and the reality which was offered him differed too terribly from the ideal of his dreams. He did not know how wide a country arid and precipitous must be crossed before the traveller through life comes to an acceptance of reality. It is an illusion that youth is happy, an illusion of those who have lost it, but the young know they are wretched, for they are full of the truthful, truthless ideals which have been instilled into them, and each time they come in contact with the real, they are bruised and wounded. It looks as if they were victims of a conspiracy, for the books they read, ideal by the necessity of selection, and the conversation of their elders, who look back upon the past through a rosy haze of forgetfulness, 
prepare them for an unreal life. They must discover for themselves that all they have read and all they have been told are lies, 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 and each discovery is another nail driven into the body of the cross of life. The strange thing is that each one who has gone through that bitter disillusionment adds to it in his turn unconsciously by the power within him which is stronger than himself. The companionship of Hayward was the most possible thing for Philip, was the worst possible thing for Philip. He was a man who saw nothing for himself but only through a literary atmosphere, and he was dangerous because he had deceived himself into sincerity. He honestly mistook his sensuality for romantic emotion, his vacillation for the artistic temperament, and his idleness for philosophic calm. His mind, vulgar in its effort at refinement, saw everything a little larger than life, with the outlines blurred in a golden mist of sentimentality. He lied and never knew that he lied, and when it was pointed out to him, said that lies were beautiful. He was an idealist. Or right, there we go, another chapter down. Go ahead, have your say about that one at the subreddit. Thanks very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.